Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you, part, of course, of the Agora Podcast Network. We just released an episode uh, probably earlier this week. Not exactly sure when we're going to get this one live, but we're recording Tuesday, March 17th, um, one day after we released our last episode. And You know we're talking about something important when we name the date that we're talking about it, or at least something timely. Something that changes every day a lot. What could it yeah. be? What could it possibly be that we're going to talk about today? Well, one thing it's not is sports, because <laughs> there ain't any. <laughs> there, there are no sports. Um, you're, you're stuck now at work. There, you have nothing to talk to your coworkers about. Oh, wait. Yeah. Can't go into work. Yeah. Coronavirus. Although, Everyone's actually, I, I actually want... It. Yeah, I actually want to—we're we're, going to be talking about coronavirus today and actually having a debate, and we'll get to that in a sec. But I actually—I I have, have a soapbox, and I'm going to use it. Um, and, and one of the things I realized yesterday—so so as of today, the Bay Area is in shelter in place. So I'm sheltering in place. I'm, I'm in my house. Luckily, it's a very nice house. Like, I'm an incredibly fortunate person where I can work from home. I can continue to take my paycheck— um, and I, you know, my house is comfortable and, and I've got a backyard and I can stretch my legs, right? All that good stuff. Life, life is peachy for me and it is super duper not for many Americans. We're going to be talking, uh, economics about that in just a moment. Cause it's like, so this is, this is why we should think about all this stuff. This is like, this, this is everything reconsider stands for in action right now. What should we do? Right? What is the right thing to do? How should we think about it? How do we cut through the crap? The thing I want to, the thing I just want to shout out to is like for all of you who actually can't work from home or can't comfortably be at home, right? All of you who are listening to this, who are like on the front lines of this in any way, right? And there are so many ways that people are on the front lines. Of course, we think of our first responders and we think of medical staff. But, you know, in this shelter in place right now, grocery stores are still open. Right. Grocery stores are still open and people are manning the registers. Right. And they're making they are they are they are by the necessity of their job in contact with dozens or hundreds of people every day. And they're putting themselves at risk. And I realized this last night when I was, you know, kind of getting the last fresh stuff I wanted. I'd already I'd already um, I already had like a month of food. Uh, not that much toilet paper, um, but, you know, it, it'll last a month, right? And, um, but I, I just saw this, like, really stressed out uh, woman, you know, manning the, manning the, 
the, sorry, the cashier. And I had this moment of like just very profound uh, emotion and sympathy and gratitude, most importantly. And what I realized is that, and, and I, I told her this and she probably thought I was crazy, but you know, I said, look, this is, this is the day it's, I said, look, this is probably crazier than Thanksgiving. She's like, I've never seen it this crazy. And I said, Hey, thank you. Cause right now I, I know you are putting yourself at risk being near all these people and you and everyone else who is on the front lines, like you are like this, all the, all the drivers, all the clerks, all the you know, shelf stalkers, everyone's still cooking food. You are at risk and you are what stands between us and societal collapse at this time. You are it, right? And when people ask you, again, she probably thought I was crazy, but when people ask you like, hey, grandma, what did you do during the great 2020 plague, right? Like people like Xander and me are gonna be like, yeah, we work from home. And you will say, I made sure people stayed fed. I was out there every day making sure people ate. And and the it just never hit me the magnitude of of the importance and um uh yeah the magnitude of the importance that like that that all these different roles in society play and especially now just to everyone who's in that kind of position and and like has to go in thank you uh for what you're doing yeah i second that uh very much so uh, i had a similar experience grocery store a couple nights ago final run and uh chatted briefly with the folks at the uh, cashier's register and they just said, we're not even thinking about it. We just have, it's so busy. We just have to keep going. Um, So thank you to everyone who is putting themselves at risk to help the rest of us stay fed. And if you are fortunate like Eric and I to be able to stay home at a time like this, uh, just remember that there are people putting themselves at much graver risk, um, even to get the basic jobs done that just need to get done in order to stay fed. So, um, you know, it, it sucks being at home for, you know, I get it. But if, if that's all we need to do, if that's our, our, our small burden to bear to help make this a more manageable crisis and everything that I I've read and that I process says that it is, then let's just, suck it up and do it you know yeah. it, it's gonna it, it's gonna be a new normal for a little while it's gonna be inconvenient it's gonna be frustrating and weird we're living through a historical event and we all need to chip in yeah yeah the the best way to keep these like these folks were i mean this is this is literally i i i think it is the same magnitude as like the cleanup crew and the firefighters at ground zero right and the stakes are even higher because there are so many people that can be saved Right. There are millions that I mean, we're talking about millions of lives on the line and how we perform will condemn or save millions of people in our own country alone. Um, and especially these people who are on the front lines, um, in part because of the economic pressure that they have to to pay the bills. Right. Um, uh, for these people on the front lines, you know, keep guys uh, for, for uh, yeah. For their sake, those of us who can shelter in place, stay home, protect them, right? Do what's right to protect them um, that can't. And um, and then for those who, you know, those who are like working at bars and, and restaurants, uh, nightclubs, sporting events, all these things that they 
you know, I, I, I mean, as of like an hour ago, Amazon shut down non-essential shipping. So a lot of people are not getting paychecks. And that is that group of folks, you know, the, the first group that's, that's still out there, um, you know, we know what to do. Uh, the second group, uh, we have an interesting debate to have for you today. Uh, we're going to be doing this live. Xander, you want to tee us off? Yeah. So the, ge- the genesis of this was, you know, Eric and I chat all the time. And a couple of days ago, there was very, very little discussion in the news still. And I'm talking like Friday, like four days ago, about how what type of stimul- stimulus should be out there. And the, the conversations that were being had talked about payroll taxes and things that may have you know, not had an immediate impact, not immediately got people um, cash in their pocket today. That since changed. And the the original thought for the show was I was actually going to do something we never do at Reconsider, which is propose a policy that I thought was extremely important. And Eric was in Reconsider fashion going to play devil's advocate and argue against it. We haven't prepped any of this. Um, But since we conceived of the idea of the show, they are now proposing... Um, part of what I'm going to propose, and they is the White House. So, you know, it it's actually uh, a good sign that I, I think people are moving towards recognizing where the gaps and the weak points are in this entire crisis and trying to remedy that, and that's what we're going to talk about. And as Eric mentioned, there is this second group of people who, you know, unlike grocery store workers who are putting themselves at risk and continue to work, will lose a job or just not have income in in the near future and they don't have savings there is a statistic that i remember hearing on i think it was the indicator another it was a podcast that's something like 40 percent of americans and this was several months ago don't have 400 dollars in savings if they were hit with a surprise 400 dollar medical bill they wouldn't be able to pay it so there are lots of americans that can't afford to stay home they need to continue to go out and of course the greatest risk right now at this early stage of this pandemic is more human interaction will lead to more transmission of the virus, which will lead to more of the most vulnerable amongst us getting sick, possibly dying. But remember, even if you don't die, this is not a fun thing to have. The The pneumonia that it causes can cause permanent scarring, and it's just a really nasty thing that can, if, if everyone gets it at once, overwhelm the healthcare system. So the trick really is to get people to stay at home. But how do you do that if you can't afford it? And my proposal, which at least was novel a couple of days ago, um, certainly not in, in the, well, anyways, it's just money in people's pockets. Uh, there, there, is, there is a need, and it needs to be very, very quick that we move dollars into people's pockets right now at this early stage to get them to be able to afford to stay home. Because if we can afford to stay home, if more of us can afford to stay home, there will be a decreased transmission of the virus and there will be longer long there will be fewer long term costs to the economy because it's basically unavoidable. We're going into a recession now, right? So that was my idea. I ran some brief numbers on it, which we'll get into the details on. Um it's not the only thing that I need to have that I think needs to happen. And I want to get into a little bit what other countries in Europe, what sort of stimulus packages they've already begun to implement. But it really seems like the trick right now is money to people to limit the spread of the virus. And it needs to happen immediately quickly. Xander, I would, I would like to propose a slight alteration to the debate. I've put some thought into this and I believe so. So I was in American parliamentary debate in college. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, I was pretty good at it. 
And uh, I only ever had to pull this card once. Um, and the, the card is... Uh, the card is essentially that the position is undebatable. So um, in American parliamentary debate, uh, the, the, the team that is picked as government would propose a policy and the team picked as opposition would oppose that policy. And you had to do it live, right? The opposition had to make it up as they went. And um, an undebatable point is one where you actually, you, you change the rules of the game where you make the case that, that you cannot possibly win the debate. It is such an obviously good idea. The classic case in this was legalizing marijuana, right? So government, if, if government proposed legalizing marijuana, the, the, and nobody did it because everyone knew that this was the case study, opposition would go, this is undebatably a good idea. And then the debate becomes about whether it is an undebatable idea. So I want to make the case that um, a, the helicopter money... Um, in order to help in, as, a, as a humanitarian, life-saving, and health crisis um, uh, mitigating move is undebatably a good idea, and I'm not going to argue against it. So I'd like to change, instead of arguing with you about whether it's undebatable, I would like to change the nature of the debate to um, focus only on the recession. So ignoring the, ignoring the, the virus itself... Um, talk about, you know, every recession has a trigger. We have something that has triggered a recession. I want to make the, I want to argue about whether helicopter money in people's pockets is the right way to respond to a recession, um, uh, in the economy. So this could apply just as well to something like 2008, 1987, 2001, 1929, etc. How are you with that, Xander? I'm okay with that. Cool. Um, all right. So given the, we are, we are doing this live, uh, so I have no notes in front of me. Xander, you probably have some. Um, uh, I also want to state my biases up front um, about this. I actually, uh, I support the idea of helicopter money um, generally uh, for a recession. I have some reservations about it. Um, those reservations will come in full display. So um, I, am not, uh, I am not actually in a position of being vehemently against it. Uh, however, I will... Uh, I have thought about it. I will do my darndest to argue the opposition's case because I think it is it is an arguable, reasonable case um, that uh, that is worth that is worth thinking about. So, with that, Mr. Snyder, um, uh, government has the floor. So now I'm making the case for why this is a good idea in in this coming recession, right? Exactly. Exactly. Fine. Yeah, we don't have to stick to to American parliamentary style. We'll we'll go more freeform on that. But uh, I would. Given that I've changed the rules of the debate to uh, it's a recession, um, uh, uh, it is your it is your move to state your case about why this is the right move uh, at the beginning of a recession. All recessions are different. That means that solutions to different recessions must necessarily be different as well. There is no one size fits all solution to recessions. And therefore, you need to look at the specifics of each one to see what's falling short. Is there a massive decline in asset prices underpinned by you know a failure in debt market debt markets, which is something that happened in two thousand and eight? Is there a decline in demand in the economy and consumer spending for one reason or another? Is there a shortfall in supply of critical goods, which can lead to what economists would call 
Um, let's see if I can remember this. Co cost, cost push, demand pull. It's cost push, I think. Inflation, the idea that uh, inflation can rise not because demand for something increases, but because there's just not as much of a certain product available. And I think the challenge that we're facing with the recession that we are now staring at is that it's coming at us from both directions, from both the demand side and the supply side. From the supply side, we've been seeing these effects since February. Companies like Apple, Microsoft, different car manufacturers have been announcing that their supply chains have been interrupted by COVID-19 due to their dependence on China as their as a critical supplier of components. And they've revised down their first quarter estimates already as a result of this. So we know that there's going to be a disruption on the supply side and there will be limited uh, a, l a limited amount of certain types of products. At the same time, because the solution at this point, the medical solution is sheltering in place in San Francisco or self-quarantining elsewhere, that necessarily means that there's going to be a large decrease in consumer spending because it's just hard to get out. Uh, additionally, because there is a large decrease in consumer spending, businesses are going to struggle to pay wages, people are going to lose jobs, and it's going to be a cycle in which demand falls rapidly as well, very quickly. So the challenge then is how do we solve these two problems, the supply problem and the demand problem, and they require different solutions. The demand problem, I really think in this case, has to be money in people's pockets day one, not just because that will help plug the gap in demand, but because it will help stop the spread of the virus if we can get people the ability to stay home. This is not always going to be the right solution in, in a recession. On the supply side, I think there are a number of different things we can do, some of which is already being done. The Federal Reserve immediately supplied up to $1.5 trillion in short-term liquidity uh, to the repurchase agreement market and a lot of people have already kind of like bernie sanders was misstating this that it was a 1.5 trillion dollar bailout that's not what happened the yeah let me let me just add that that was irresponsible i agree entirely he was, it was deeply irresponsible of him to claim that this was a wall street bailout well i mean like he's yeah it oh it's so frustrating yeah it, it's it was not it was just a complete mischaracterization of what actually happened uh banks did not just get money it was three different sets of facilities provided by the Federal Reserve in $500 billion tranches of slightly different tenors. And basically, it was just money that was injected into the short-term lending markets to make sure that liquidity didn't seize up. The, the banks did not just get the money and that's it. It was repaid with interest. There are these short-term lending markets called repurchase uh, repo markets, or short, which is short for repurchase agreements. And we won't get into all the details here, but the idea is that banks will often lend between uh, between themselves cash for short-term securities just to fund their daily operations. And the Federal Reserve uh, doesn't, they will sometimes inject liquidity into these markets one way or another. But because failure in the, re in the repo markets was ultimately the nail in the coffin for Lehman Brothers, because... Other banks failed one day to roll over their overnight loans. That's what ultimately the last thing that set off the collapse of Lehman and the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. So by stepping up and quickly injecting this liquidity into repo markets, to me actually shows that the Federal Reserve learned 
the le- learned some lessons from 2008 to 2009. And then in addition to that, of course, they cut rates to like close to zero, which is the one that's receiving more headlines. But all of these things are important because the challenge for businesses now, and now we're talking about the supply side of the recession, is going to be ensuring that there's enough cash flow coming in so that the business can stay in business for long enough to recover from this uh, crisis after it's over. You might have totally viable businesses that are going to have liquidity shocks or the idea that there's just not enough cash coming in to meet their monthly obligations. And that's going to be the key problem to solve because we want businesses to be around when this is all over to hopefully not rehire, but you know, bring more people uh, back onto full-time work, raise everyone's hours and raise everyone's pay back to where it was. And there are different ways to go about doing that, but I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to pause there. I think the for me, the the case that I'm not going to try to argue against is that, unfortunately, we do have an exogenous, we have an exogenous factor, a, a true black swan event that has forced a shutdown of commerce, right? And... Uh, I do so so maybe I even want to tweak this argument a little bit that one of the reasons that putting money in people's pockets is so obvious is that they can't do anything. Um, uh, there's no adjustment of the economy that can happen. What I'd like to do is is assume that um, what I'd like to do is assume that the shutdown in commerce from this is fairly short term, which I don't believe it will be, but uh, for the sake of debate, um, I think it's I think it's useful because uh, let me first let me first actually make the case why I think the the coronavirus um, black swan makes this an unarguable uh, position or sorry undebatable position. Um, ultimately, there are like in order to continue to get electricity in your home, water in your home, gas in your home, food on your table, rent paid. It requires resources, right? Like living requires money. Um, And if most activities are forced to be shut down by this event and and government policy about this event, not that I'm taking a like government policy bad, right? Kind of position right now. Um, But if they are forced to be shut down, it means that people are incapable of of being productive. What I want to talk about is the recession that follows, right? Um, so, so this is why I kind of want to assume that this is fairly short term. I want to talk about the recession that's going to follow. And what I want to talk about is, is the difference between triggers and structural problems. Let me use geopolitics as an example. Um, World War I was caused by an archduke getting shot in Serbia, right? Well, no. No. That was the trigger, literally. It was the trigger for World War I. Um, this is similar to the case of, of other wars. There are many incidents that are occurring with enough frequency between various nations that could be used as a cashless belly if they wanted to. But the reason they end up wanting to go to war is for structural geopolitical reasons, is for you know, reasons that we can understand using, you know, I prefer the realist school, but there is theory behind war. It is not random. It is not chaos. Um, I believe also we need to be looking to the structural problems 
that have been inherent in the United States economy for a long time. I think the, I, the, the counterfactual that people may potentially hold that is inaccurate here is that, oh, without coronavirus, things were just going to keep chugging along fine indefinitely. It is actually, I think, one of the long-term tragedies of the coronavirus for our economic history keeping. Uh, not that I think that the government ever pays attention to economic history, mind you, and its policy. Um, but one of the great tragedies of coronavirus is that people will blame coronavirus for the magnitude and length of this recession, as opposed to the structural rot in the United States economy and the way that poor government policy has set us up to fail. Understanding those structural causes will help us understand what kind of adjustments need to be made um, in order for the economy to become healthy again. So two things we know, and we've talked about this on Reconsider. So Xander, I know you already agree with me. Two things we already know is that, you know, of course, the we have been on the longest uh, bull market uh, in history, I think, uh, but it doesn't matter. It's super long, um, 11, 12 years. Nearly 11. Um, this coincides, of course, with GDP growth and uh, employment growth, right? This is not just the stock market. Employment has grown. GDP has grown. This, what, what happens at a downturn is people look at the peak and they go, man, we were at this great healthy place, right? We've also talked about why GDP is not necessarily a great measure of an economy. In 2008... The GDP, the stock market, all this stuff was inflated, right? It was inflated. Um, things were not as healthy as those numbers seem to, seem to predict. And the fact that it was inflated was the very trigger of a recession that brought it down further than where it needed to be. Bubbles burst. And when they burst, it is ugly. The United States government has irresponsibly over years, and I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to say exactly where you know one one administration's blame ends and another begins. It doesn't matter. Has irresponsibly for years had historically low interest rates for an historically long period of time and um, had his had historically high debt for an historically long period of time. These are both separate problems that set up the U.S. economy to fail. First, the historically low interest rates during a boom. Uh, goose the economy when it doesn't need goosing. And when an economy doesn't need goosing and it's getting goosed, you're creating a bubble. Um, oh gosh, Xander, what is the name of the wonderful economist from Cal that has joined us twice? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Uh, oh, from Cal uh, State. Um, UCSB. Jake. Yes. So Jake has uh, Jake has Jake has made this case quite eloquently um, that the very low interest rates we've had for a very long time allow uh, basically make money nearly free. And when money is nearly free, what it means is that it people are encouraged to take on loans to make investments, which sounds great, right? But the problem is, and Friedrich Hayek made this very clear in a way that governments have never listened to, money does not equal capital. Money does not, you know, cash does not equal capital. So if you have a certain amount of resources, say labor and materials, and you triple the amount of money in the market that is competing for those, right, you have not created more labor and materials to invest. When you invest, you are putting, you know, you're putting money, which is a proxy for these labor, labor and materials into the market. Um, but you, are, you do not have more labor and materials to be able to do more things with. You actually can't do more. Um, you can, you know, that labor and materials can be used more efficiently, and that's what technological progress is for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you know, improvements in business processes and stuff like that. But it, what it does is it creates a bubble. We saw this in 2008 um, through, a, uh, through a number of factors, but including government encouragement to give loans to people who could not afford them. Um, explicitly, uh, there was a housing market bubble. More houses were built than were needed, right? There was going, and so one resources were shifted away from better investment opportunities that were much more fundamentally stable and valuable, um, that would have built a much more lasting growth in the economy. Um, but then we had a bunch of assets that people were buying because the price was going up, right? And we got this runaway exuberance. It had to crash, and then all of a sudden we had these assets that nobody needed. Um, and we had not built things that we needed to build. Um, the, we were set up to fail. There was nothing that was going to prevent that. And um, the economy had to readjust. It had to readjust. Um, Hayek's, uh, I love Hayek's analogy of the hair of the dog, right? So, I'm uh, oh, sorry, I'll actually get back to the hair of the dog uh, one in a moment. Um, the other thing worth... Uh, so the, the other side of this is, of course, government debt. So we're talking about spending money in a time period where, where the government already has a fantastical amount of, of debt, historically high debt. Um, and as we've seen in places such as Greece, government debt getting too high becomes a, national, a long-term national economic crisis um, that you can't spend your way out of. Right? And I know the United States has more power to spend its way out of things than, uh, than other countries, we need to not be taking on a massive amount of new debt, um, in particular in a time when revenues are going to be dropping. Um, I, I believe the debt issue has become an existential crisis. Instead of giving out money, we should be taking in money. We should be raising taxes on the wealthy in order to meet our obligations and keep the United States federal government secure, keep the dollar secure, or else we're going to have um, a spiral, a, an interest rate spiral that we won't be able to control, right? That you will not be able to break out of. This will be a tailspin, right? Um, and the temporary pain I understand is painful and people want to alleviate it. But now I want to talk about the hair of the dog issue. So right now, due to these historically low interest rates for an historically long time, we have a massive bubble in the market. Um, that market bubble, there is no way that that cannot, that that cannot go down. It must readjust. It must readjust. There's no, we have to get over the fantasy that the peak of the market is this like good, healthy place that we are fine at. Um, and what throwing, you know, uh, and, and excuse me, uh, we, we are a consumer-driven economy. 
unfortunately, we have for decades and decades told people that, you know, they should spend, 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 go into debt. It's fine. Let's make debt easy. Let's make debt cheap. Keep going into debt. Keep spending stuff. Keep buying things you don't need. Um, and that this will this will save us. All we're doing is asking them to do that a little more for a little longer to delay the inevitable. The longer the inevitable is delayed, the worse that it gets. Hayek called this the hair of the dog problem, right? We have a hangover right now because of all the, the proverbial drinking we've been doing. What we're asking people to do to get over it is to drink more. Um, we, we, there are things we can do, but we have, but fundamentally, there is no way forward and through this without the economy going through a massive readjustment where unfortunately resources, labor, materials have been grossly misinvested, um, malinvested, badly deployed. Those resources need to be released back into the pool of resources for investment in a tighter money situation um, such that uh, you know only high return investments are possible. If we allow, if we don't allow these resources to go back into the pool, there's no opportunity to readjust. If, if material and labor don't become cheaper, the investment opportunities to bring them, bring them back online in a more efficient way don't open up. Um, we should not, so uh, I know I've talked a lot, but in conclusion, we should not attempt to just keep the party going. We have been doing that for way too long already. We should have stopped doing it five years ago, um, but continuing, but we, we can't, uh, yeah, we just can't keep, fantasizing that the party's going to keep going by by throwing money at people. Right. Unfortunately, I'm of the I'm of a mind that in the middle of the crisis is not going to be the time that we're going to be able to fix that problem, right? I mean, the time to cut back on spending was in 2016-2017 when all of the underlying macroeconomic indicators were positive. But we're stuck in this problem where we need the government needs to step in to fill in what's going to be the fall in aggregate demand. And aggregate demand is just a fancy word for all of the demand in an economy, be it consumer or otherwise, because GDP growth is determined by consumer spending and business investment, government spending, and a couple of other things. So when you have a fall in business investment, which we're like, likely to see, and a decline in consumer spending, GDP is going to fall. That's just part of how the calculations go. Now, in terms of how much we need to spend, I have shared this idea with a handful of people, and they go, "Oh, yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like the UBI thing." And I, that's actually actually really not what I'm proposing. I'm not saying that I'm for or against UBI in the long term. What I'm saying is that we need an immediate transfer of money to people to help them get them to stay home. But that doesn't mean that it's a it's a perpetual grant, right? So. The rough numbers that I calculated, if there's 140 million taxpayers and you give each of them $1,000, that's about $114 billion a month. Uh, yeah. Excuse me. Now, it might be that month two or month three, we need to adjust those rules a little bit. They need to, we need a little bit more money. We need a little bit less money. People with children need to get over or under a certain amount, but I'm arguing that this money needs to be distributed immediately, unconditionally, without means testing, because the political debate that would need to ensue to try to determine what those means testing should be would fall prey to all the tribal politics that we've been talking about on Reconsider for a long time and end up taking more time than we have right now. The goal is to get people to stay home immediately, and I... And I think that something that gets lost a lot of the time 
in political conversations in the U.S. is this idea that, oh, if something isn't perfect, we shouldn't do it. And that's insane. Because when have you ever started without something and your first attempt at it was perfect? That makes no sense. Policy has to move stepwise in, in gradual increments. And if we can get this first distribution out, you know, uh, let's see. Let me, let me check this math again. It was 140 times 6. Yeah, 108. Well, I, I did it before. I'm just pulling the numbers back up. Yeah. So if if we need to distribute $1,000 to every taxpayer in America for six months, that's $840 billion just on the demand side. And like I said a moment ago, there needs to be other things, other actions that are taken, and I'll talk about that in a second. But $840 billion just as a number is not that crazy like we did we did that basically in 2008 2009 the figure then was 750 but if you factor in inflation it was more than that and i'm not sure if we would need that same policy for six months we could probably adjust it so that the people who don't need that additional thousand dollars don't don't get in the second month but everyone who needs it day one gets it that's part of my argument now, if we want to talk about the supply side issues, we're talking about businesses staying in business. Something that Germany has done that's been receiving a lot of praise, kind of from across the board, including technocrats and anti-technocrats. And if you follow German politics, you know there are a lot of anti-technocratic folks in Germany today. It's this government guarantee for loans. So it's basically saying, you know, these businesses are going to struggle. That means they're going to struggle to pay debt. And whenever you have a systematic challenge in paying uh, and servicing debt, then banks become challenged and then the whole financial system becomes challenged. And that it starts becoming an even bigger problem than it was to start off with. But if you could provide some sort of guarantee to businesses that they won't have to default on their debt, then banks will not have to fear that that's an eventuality and they can continue operating and hopefully drawing down on um, credit facilities offered by the Federal Reserve or the European Central Bank, so on and so forth. But I like the idea of a debt guarantee. I think Germany provided $550 billion of, of debt guarantees and then you need to start having the conversation of who gets it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I I would prioritize speed right now over per, over perfection in in any case, and a government guarantee again may need to be funded with debt. The Federal Reserve could buy debt issued by the government, and g- usually the the argument against that sort of I mean that that really is what printing money is, right? The government spends a lot, and then the Federal Reserve buys its debt and funds it the is inflation the the traditional argument against that sort of stuff is uh is just the risk of inflation but if we're going to go through this period of of suppressed aggregate demand the idea that people are not going to be able to spend as much as they would anyways that we're going to have a lot fewer pressures on inflation than we would otherwise and that's something we saw in 2008 2009 a lot of people said oh my gosh all this stimulus we're going to see hyperinflation and i'll tell you what I was one of those folks. I just graduated with an economics degree, and I said, all of my econ classes told me that this amount of, of stimulus and printing money is going to lead to inflation, and I was wrong. And so it was everyone else that said that. And the reason was that there was a blockage in the transmission between banks receiving additional capital and actually lending it. And I think that that's what we're going to see this time around, too. We're going to see 
way, way less consumer spending. So if we need to print money to offset that decline in demand, I don't think we're going to see, at least in the short term, the sort of traditional risk of inflation that you would read in you know a traditional economics textbook. So I think that sort of thing is very important to support businesses. And I think that the debt that we're going to have to incur in the short term here is unavoidable. But then, of course, we circle back to what Eric was talking about. And the political incentives during boom times are such that it almost never makes sense to cut spending. We didn't do it in 2016, 2017 when we should have had, when we should have. How, how do we guarantee, Eric, that politicians actually do the fiscally responsible thing three years from now and not continue to add to the debt? What's going to be the thing that forces fiscal responsibility in Washington, D.C.? Well, I, I think that, I actually think that the, the government debt uh, death spiral is is a bit of a side issue um, because you're you're you know I, I think you're you're look I think you're asking me a, a, a question that that I answer only by saying the United States is not going to become fiscally responsible until it has faced so much pain for fiscal responsibility that it decides to go down a 50-year path of becoming fiscally solvent again right and it's just going to be bad um, it's going to be really ugly and um, I, I see no, I see no way out of it. Nobody wants to, you know, um, I mean, the other option is that, is that, uh, you know, the Democrats just decide they're going to, you know, soak the rich, uh, because they're getting spooked. Right. And that's the other way to do it, which, um, you know, which is viable, right. You know, we've got a very wealthy country. Um, you can soak the rich to try to, to try to fund some stuff. What I want to, what I want to do is focus on, focus on the potential long-term economic damage of trying to like keep keep riding the tiger um, of, of stimulating, um, stimulating the, the demand side. So let's fast forward a little bit to when the, when the crisis is over and, and uh, commerce is able to resume. Um, I believe the recession, e- even if you kind of just like kept everyone fed, like freeze everything in place, spend a lot of money, keep everyone fed, say, hey, we can come back to it, you know, come back to it and, and look, it's, it's going to look like a contraction because there were like, you know, two months of not doing anything. Right. But then the, the, you know, if you keep everyone fed, the economy could presumably keep going. Right. Well, it's not going to, because we've now triggered a recession. We have found, you know, this recession has, in addition to hurting perfectly viable businesses has, sorry, it's not the recession has the coronavirus, right? The recession isn't, isn't currently the problem. The problem is that uh, commerce is locked down. There are perfectly viable businesses um, and you know well-deployed assets that are being impacted by this. I'm fine with keeping them from from all getting snuffed out. You know, baby with the bathwater problem. Let's fast forward to when this virus, when when people can resume normal commerce again. Do you do you still advocate for continuing to uh, you know debt debt aside, use the uh, the helicopter money or or the you know the the pocket payout uh, method to help the economy recover um, and to try to mitigate the effects of the recession? I think I'll go back to what I said at the beginning of the conversation, which is, it just really depends on the circumstance. If we're still seeing, you know. An, inc- an incredible gap in demand and people just aren't spending because they're still not going outside or they don't have jobs. 
then it, it may be an effective way to boost the economy. Yeah, I think that's that could be a reasonable way to do it. I'm not necessarily proposing a perpetual universal basic income, though. I think of that course. that is a policy very much worth talking about that I'm I'm making a distinction is not what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, so I it it really depends on the circumstance, honestly. I, I don't know if it will be appropriate in a year to continue doing uh, a policy like that, or at that point, you begin to become a little bit more fiscally responsible. Hopefully, as this virus recedes and as everything can start to go back to normal, and I do think it could take up to a year, unfortunately. I mean, if you look yes. at the Spanish flu, there's the resurgence and fall that killed the most people. Yes. Um, who knows, right? So I guess my answer so, to you is I don't know. It depends on the circumstance. But what it, I w- Yeah, go ahead. What I want to do to make this a little meteor is pick on the aggregate demand thing because yeah. I've always hated macroeconomics for like just this reason is that like we look at aggregate demand, we look at consumer spending like as a number. It's a thing. And consumer spending being high is a good sign. But that's not always true. The people will spend more money on things that they need less, right? We can all stack rank the things that we need. And... Um, you know, when they have more money, they spend more on the things that they don't need. And they spend more money on things that they need less when they believe, you know, and I'm not talking about the ultra rich here because they'll, they'll never be in need. Um, they'll never run out of savings. But, but for most Americans, most of the time, you know, we have to understand that our median income is still, still the highest in the world, essentially. Um, uh, we had an we had an episode on GDP and income, and um, and our cost of living is not anywhere close to the highest in the world. One of the reasons Americans are deeply in debt is that uh, debt is easy; it is encouraged, um, and we spend money on things that we don't need now more than ever. Um, Personal debt is, you know, even though even though wages have risen and not as fast as as I would have predicted or, or would have liked, but real wages have risen um, uh, compared to you know compared to costs and and somehow our personal debt continues to rise, business debt continues to rise, and I believe this is due to, um, and I think it's very very clear that it's that it's due to easy credit, easy money, um, this idea that there is you know that that you can leverage aggressively. That you can depend on future uh, future money coming in, and so what that means is that our high level of aggregate demand, our high level of consumer spending, is spending stuff spend, is spending on stuff that we don't need and putting ourselves at you know at economic risk by doing so. And so what it you know this is a little like the digging holes and filling the back in again thing. We buy a bunch of toys that our kids are never going to use because um, it is you know fun to buy things and. We have no money left over for when there's a problem. What's the point of this? It is that the ag, the consumer spending is not necessarily a sign of good economic health. Consumer spending with high levels of personal debt is bad. Um, and therefore, I think, you know, in, in terms of trying to use solutions such as helicopter money to boost aggregate demand, again, post-actual, post, post you know, going outside kills you. Um, after that has passed, 
you know, all it does is, is continue to encourage us is to try to kind of like, again, use things to continue to, to it's, it's this like attempt to just pray and hope and throw money at the problem and get us back to the way that things were. But the problem with the way that things were is that we were spending unsustainably. We did not have savings. You know, you and I just before this podcast talked about Keynesianism. During the good times, Americans didn't save, and it's because we encourage them to spend. And so many industries, if we look at the demand side of this, many industries expanded or were even created um, on, on the backs of this obsession with spending um, and consuming that we have that is not necessarily a sign of economic health. A lot of those, you know, those, those industries need to go or they need to shrink, um, and that that spend needs to be reoriented, you know, that money needs to be reoriented towards real savings, which drives real investment um, and allows, you know, one, allows Americans to be, you know, just much more, much more resilient through problems that occur so that we won't have these kinds of recessions where um, aggregate demand crashes in the future. But it's also the case that um, due to, you know, from the, from the case I made before, that we have some malinvestment. We have assets that are inflated. We have habits of buying things that don't need to be made. Um, and that is a sign of a fundamentally sick economy. We got to where we are, uh, you know, in February 2020, um, out, of a, out of a spending bubble and a debt-driven bubble, um, encouraged by the federal government uh, and the Federal Reserve, um, and I think it's I, I'm I'm making the case that it is inevitable that there's there that like the butcher's bill is going to come due like it is unavoidable the damage has already been done we are now just seeing the consequences um, all we can do by throwing money at the problem is delay again post coronavirus post coronavirus all we can do by throwing money at the problem is delay when we have to make this readjustment and the longer we delay it the worse it is that's the that's the case I want to make. So what changes? Uh, elaborate, elaborate for me. Well, you say we need to... It seems to me like you're saying that people have... Consumer spending is not always a great number to look at because it can be inflated with debt. Am I summarizing more or less? That is... That's part of it, certainly, yeah. So how do we... How do we go about limiting access to debt when things are good? Because it seems like that would be the solution to it, right? How, man, maybe we need a whole separate episode on like how we go about fixing stuff when we're when we're done here. But um, yeah, how how do you fix the incentives that drive individuals to borrow more in good times? Maybe as not the economics major, I'm um, I'm making I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm stumbling into something that seems obvious to you, but but. Uh, but it's not to me. Um, but, you know, basic Keynesianism from the position of, you know, the federal government should be that that interest rates are, you know, the bank's interest rates are higher um, when there is more demand for capital, right? When people want more debt to be able to go invest in stuff or buy stuff. So this is, again, both from the, the corporate debt side and the consumer debt side. When there is more demand for capital that isn't your own, that you haven't saved, then the rates should go up, right? So the cost of money should go up with, with, with demand and, and down with supply. And as much as I don't entirely agree with a gold standard, right, the idea of that is that, look, the, the, 
Gold here represents the, the capital that's available. We can't infinitely create more. So as demand goes up and as the supply dwindles, the price of, the price of money goes up. We can do this artificially um, with, you know, with Federal Reserve policy, but we haven't. We've actually dropped the interest rate as the economy's heated up and as, um, you know, and as the, the, you know, the demand for capital has increased. And in doing so, you know, encouraged, encouraged, like dangerously excessive spending habits. So I think, you know, obviously in the future, next time around, we actually need to follow that. Um, but it's what makes that, that rot that was built by terribly irresponsible um, uh, monetary policy um, and some irresponsible fiscal policy that, that gives us fewer options to do stuff here. Um, that, that rot built by this means, you know, means I think we're in a, we're in a position where we can only delay the inevitable. You may be right. I guess I don't, I don't have much of a response to that right now because I, maybe what we need to do as this crisis goes on is continue to keep in the back of our minds that the solutions that we need to implement right now in the immediate term mm. need to need to somehow have a way to be walked back because that it's basically not what happened in 2008 2009 right that the 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 stimulus that became the, the stimulus that that basically prevented a depression became the new way of doing things and it led to the federal reserve having fewer options and almost perpetually low interest rates, inflating asset bubbles, so on and so forth. So as we talk about these policies now, we need to remind ourselves how we walk, either walk them back in the future or somehow do something different in the next cycle, in the next up cycle, to place restraints on uh, politicians' tendency to spend money because it's good for their political careers. How do we how do we do that while at the same time recognizing and prioritizing speed to action, which is something that we haven't been very good at recently? I don't know, but in the interest of pressuring politicians to act quickly now, I do think it's a good strategy to remind everyone that elections are coming up very soon, and you know, one way to keep politicians responsible is to vote strongly on one issue or another, and. I think that quick action right now is going to be more important than the perfection of policy and people who drag their feet, people who, when I say people, I mean politicians who drag their feet, who argue that something shouldn't be passed because it's not perfect. Um, that's going to end up contributing to the problem and we have a way to hold them responsible in the near, in the near future. It's not, it's not a hypothetical future for folks in Congress and folks in the Senate right now. So keep that in mind, keep that in your political toolbox and force our leaders to act quickly. I agree with you. And to, to cap off our debate, the only thing I would say, and maybe this is for a part two, is that I think the argument against what I'm saying, which is no, you know, no stimulus, no, no demand side assistance, again, post-crisis, um, even though I, yeah, I actually, as Eric, like out of my role, do believe that there is this systemic rot from, from um, you know, from, from the way that we've managed uh, both fiscal and monetary policy, but um, is, is there's a cascading failure argument where, um, you know, where the, the risk is that not, you know, not only the bad assets die off, right? There are, there are 
people because they become unemployed from that, you know, can't pay their rent and then, um, you know, and, and or like can't buy groceries. And so the grocery store is affected and and you have this kind of rolling, this rolling damage that rolls through and that there may be ways to, uh, you know, to or there, there are, you know, many economists argue there are ways to mitigate that. Um, that is that then we get into a bit of a, you know, where we would end up there is is a bit of a hair splitting um, or not a hair splitting argument. But I think like the real debate um, about how to responsibly and effectively um, create a stimulus, uh, how you should create it in the short term. And then, of course, like Xander and I would would in reality largely find alignment on uh, what what is generally speaking, what we think of as like responsible or not responsible in, in the good times. So um, hope everyone uh, found that helpful. Um, you know, I think the again, we don't typically advocate for policy. In this case, you know, we the debate we had about how to deal with this, how to deal with a general recession is an is a is a really interesting and and obviously very important one. Where Xander and I are very aligned is you know the the need for like decisive crisis management leadership here. That that look, it's going to be painful and it's going to be expensive. You know, plagues. Uh, in addition to all the other damage they do, they they are going to you know they're going to add to the national debt. It's one of the reasons that. Uh, I mean, I wasn't predicting a plague, but black swans and recessions are those things that you have to look out for when you see the the deficit rise. And, um, you know, there's a lot that we could have done and didn't. Now we are, we are, we are where we are and, and have to do what we can. So, uh, so just to be very clear, I happen, I happen to agree with Xander on, on his positions about, uh, crisis management through the, um, you know, through the, the plague year that is 2020. With that, I think we'll sign off for now. Hope, uh, hope everyone out there is staying safe. Stay home if possible. If you if you aren't able to stay home, and you need to be out there doing work, especially if it's critical work, thank you. We appreciate what you're doing, and be sure to thank those folks if you run into them at the grocery store because that's probably going to be a thankless job right now. Yeah. With that, I guess I'll say, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause reconsider xander signing off don't let us think for you either even though we have our own opinion sometimes this is eric signing off stay safe everyone and good luck planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.